Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. My name is Kelly Brownell, and I'm the director of the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity at Yale University, where I also serve as professor of psychology and epidemiology and public health. This is one of a series of podcasts that have taken place with the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Daniel Esty as our guest. Uh, professor Esty is a Hill House professor of environmental law and policy with appointments in both the Yale Law School and the Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies. He spent a number of years as a high official in the Environmental Protection Agency and has very interesting ideas on how companies, individuals, and even countries can change their environmental blueprint or footprint, rather. Um, he's the author of a wonderful book called Green to Gold, How Smart Companies Use Environmental Strategy to Innovate, Create Value, and Build Competitive Advantage. And I'd like to talk with Professor Esty today about the environmental ideas and also get some sense of how it might apply to the health and nutrition arena. So welcome. Thank you very much. Glad Pleasure to, have, to be with you. Glad to have you here now. Let's start off by having you explain, if you don't mind, your index that you've created and now use for some 10 years, release every year at the World Economic Forum in Switzerland, um, about uh, measuring the environmental damage that a company or even a whole country can, can create. So our environmental performance index that uh, we just released uh, in January at the World Economic Forum in Davos looks at 25 different indicators of pollution control and natural resource management at the country scale. And the idea is that environmental decision making has for too long been a matter of sort of expert judgment, uh, frankly almost guessing in some cases or at best relying on uh, so-called experts or gurus. And what we found is that the, uh, the kind of stars of this field are not that good at figuring out where the problems are, uh, which issues are getting better, which are getting worse, and frankly even less good at understanding when policy interventions are working and when they're not. So the idea is to try and put firmer analytic foundations beneath environmental decision-making, to be more data-driven and fact-based. So we look at these 25 different indicators that add up across six well-known policy categories, you know, air pollution, water pollution, um, productive natural resources, and climate change, uh, environmental health. And we can then begin to start to say uh, who's doing well, and beyond that, dig in on why. And uh, it turns out that the leaders uh, often are doing things that can be replicated and provide good examples for others, best practices, if you will. And frankly, the laggards are often quite shocked. Uh, and, and the top to bottom numbers don't really matter. What's interesting is to dig down and look at these policy categories and try and understand who is doing well and why. And you've said that over the years, this index has received a lot of growing attention to the fact now you get standing room only audiences when you talk about it. Do you think it's because people are just interested in, in the environment more, or is it? I think there's probably something specific about this index idea, the competing countries, competing companies, and things that captures the attention of individuals. Well, Kelly, you've absolutely tapped into the critical thing here, and that's competition. It's basically harnessing the power of competition, in this case, for a, sort of a policy process. And what we have found is that nobody wants to be at the bottom of a list. They don't want to be at the bottom of our overall list. They don't want to be at the bottom of any of the individual rankings. And it turns out that countries are very focused on uh, how they can do better, why they uh, might not be doing as well as they could, and particularly focused on how they do compared to a relevant peer group. And that was one of the really uh, interesting observations. And you know, it turns out that if you're 
Haiti and you're ranked 119th, you're not really uh, motivated by the fact that you're way behind Switzerland to the top or Sweden number two. But it is interesting if you're Haiti to try and figure out why you're lagging so badly behind the Dominican Republic that's at 33rd place. So getting the right peer groupings turns out to be very powerful as a signal of what's possible and frankly what people feel like they could and should do based on those that they think they are similarly situated with. Let's talk about some very interesting ideas you have about how industries or countries can be held accountable and what they're accountable for in the environmental arena. Tell me a little bit about your thoughts on that, and especially with your idea of incentives that falls from this. Well, I think that it turns out that um, individuals and companies and communities and countries are all motivated by incentives. And the key to good policy is to really shape uh, those incentives in ways that motivate behavioral change and motivate action. And in particular, we found in the environmental arena that the key to progress is innovation uh, and technology development. So we really want to create incentives at the individual level to insist on products that are better performers, uh, to make people pay for the harms they cause, which makes them think the next time they buy that product about perhaps buying one that doesn't cause the harm. And of course, to the extent that companies are faced with consumers saying, wait a minute now, give me a car that doesn't pollute or provide me with an air conditioner that doesn't consume so much energy, it really creates a very strong incentive for the producers and for the big companies to dig in and invest in technology development. And from my analysis of the environmental arena, it seems that a, a significant percent of progress, I would estimate 90%, comes from technology breakthroughs. Talk a bit more, if you will, about this idea of accountability for harms and how you would uh, estimate how much harm a given player might create and uh, exactly what you might hold them accountable for. So the traditional model of environmental regulation sets a standard and says if you um, don't pollute above that standard, you're okay. Uh, you don't have to pay anything. You don't have uh, a problem. And what I have uh, begun to argue is that we should shift our model to one that really holds people accountable for every increment of harm. Of course, there should be a safety standard above which you cannot go uh, or else that you would be prosecuted. There would be penalties and fines and perhaps even jail time. But I believe that even below some uh, safety threshold, people should pay for harms. And I think uh, companies should be held accountable for the emissions they cause. I think individuals should be held accountable for the harms that they're causing. And I think if we all were held accountable, uh, if the facts were on the table, if we were able to track those emissions, and increasingly we can with information age technologies, it would transform how we'd regulate, uh, would give us the capacity to move from the kind of generalizations that dominate our current regulatory structure to a much more refined and individualized uh, set of requirements and frankly payments for harm causing. I'd like to make the transition to talk about how these principles might apply in the food and nutrition arena. But before I do that, operationalize, even if it's hypothetical, if you will, a little bit more about how an individual or a company might be held accountable. Like you've given examples about monitoring the emissions from an individual's car and sure. thinking about what a company might put into the environment and things. So we all know um, that every car on the road causes some degree of emissions. And uh, of course, these cars are regulated. They're meeting emissions requirements that are set out in law. And yet we continue to have harms flow from them. And frankly, the individual doesn't face that much of an incentive to buy a less polluting car or a more fuel efficient car because they personally don't pay the price for the harm their vehicle is causing. So my theory would be, why not put a 
device in the tailpipe that allows us to track emissions. Uh, it really wouldn't be hard to do today. It's uh, very similar to the kind of devices that now pay tolls electronically and allow us to whiz past the, uh, the toll booth. So why not have a device that uh, measures the pollution and sends you a bill each month for the amount of harm you caused for your car? We could tailor this to each individual and then there would be a huge incentive for that individual the next time he or she buys a vehicle to think hard about how much in the way of fees they're willing to pay in the incremental time ahead. And uh, it would produce, I think, more people buying the Prius or um, high efficiency and low polluting cars, fewer people buying the Hummers. Of course, some people will still buy Hummers, but you know, if they pay the full price for the harm their car is causing, it doesn't bother me. I think what we have now is a system where they aren't facing that price and therefore as individuals, they have little incentive to change behavior. And frankly, beyond the individual changing behavior, the key is to really get companies to rethink their product offerings in the marketplace. And if individuals started to complain about the pollution fees they were paying, uh, companies would change their product offering. They'd produce the car that doesn't pollute. Taking this into the food arena, uh, there have been major complaints in recent years about certain companies or certain groups of companies that are contributing disproportionately to the bad health that's being driven by poor nutrition, in this case overnutrition rather than malnutrition. With obesity and diabetes stampeding out of control and having um, these diseases occur in younger and younger children, we've got really an alarming picture. So the question is what might be done? So let's just take an industry or two as examples, not to pick on them, but just to use as examples because the scientific evidence would suggest these particular classes of foods are related to obesity. Let's take soft drinks and fast foods as an example, or even just one of those. If you think about a company like Coca-Cola or PepsiCo, the, the two big players in here, I think collectively they own 75% of the world market of beverages. Um, how could these ideas about responsibility incentives be applied in that arena in your mind to create um, motivation for the companies to do better even faster than they are already? So I think there are opportunities to use several of these tools that we've begun to deploy in the environmental arena in the food realm. And I think, you know, the information tool is certainly available. We already have nutrition labels uh, on products that we buy in the supermarket. But I guess let's pick the fast food example. That might even be a better one. Why shouldn't we have a more vivid display of the calories and fat content of uh, the hamburgers or uh, fried chicken that you're buying as you step up to the, to the counter in the fast food restaurant. And why not, um, beyond the signaling with uh, calorie content or, fat, food or, or uh, fat content, why not price the harms in these things? Why not have someone pay a premium if they're buying uh, something that is loaded with uh, fat and is going to be a, a nutritional problem. I mean, I think we have seen the power of price signals in the environmental arena, and it strikes me that that same incentive could apply in helping the customer steer his or her own behavior towards environmental, or in this case, nutritionally preferable purchases. And, uh, you know, if the choice is sitting there of the salad at $2 or uh, the heavily loaded hamburger at 6 it might be the people would buy more salads. The, uh, the focus using that kind of approach, which is a very interesting idea, and we've actually proposed some of these things ourselves, uh, would be on, the focus would be on the individual, so that if you want to buy the foods that are going to contribute to bad health, then you're going to pay more. Um, one of the arguments against that is that you know, people ought to be able to buy these foods and eat them once in a while, and, or if they choose to bring harm on themselves, it's perfectly fine. 
why not have the company assessed some sort of fee or some sort of a charge based on the sales of these things? If there's a way to keep the consumers and just not get passed along to consumers, it might be very interesting to do this because the companies are harming individuals, but more so they're harming the whole public. So if a company sells, you know, 10 times as many triple cheeseburgers, for example, that's going to create some harm to the public health. And so could they be held accountable for it rather than the consumer? I believe in structuring a a framework of incentives that apply at every place that a decision has to be made. So I think having a a signal to the consumer at the point that uh, he or she is picking the the dinner uh, is important. I think having a signal to the customer uh, at that level is, is critical. But I think going to the company beyond is also very valuable. And I think it does make sense to try and uh, array these incentives at various points in the process. So I think it might well make sense to uh, think about having targets for nutritional improvement that are provided to food companies and uh, have them responsible for making a certain investment in improving outcomes. And I do believe, and that's sort of the lesson from our Environmental Performance Index, that a data-driven approach with uh, outcome-based calculations and responsibility allocated to people for uh, those results really does produce changes in policy and changes in behavior. One interesting uh, application of this idea is in the food industry reformulating its food. So uh, industry can make progress by developing new versions of foods or completely new foods, but they can also reformulate ones they have. So an example would have been Frito-Lay taking the trans fats out of all its snack products. It's, and so far, the industry has basically been driven by what they perceive as consumer demand. So Frito-Lay is owned by PepsiCo. They perceive that this would buy them goodwill, but also that the consumer marketplace is coming around to healthier food. So they took the trans fats out actually a good bit of time before the public's outcry would have demanded it. Other companies have been much slower to do this sort of thing. So I'm wondering how a set of incentives could be set up to encourage the industry to go beyond just this, this demand from consumers um, but and, and not respond just to market forces, but to respond to other forces to reformulate their foods more quickly. What we found in the research behind my book, Green to Gold, that you mentioned is that smart companies do look at that broader set of incentives in the marketplace. They're not simply uh, looking at the price signals from government policy. They're not simply taking the temperature of their customers and and looking at what the customer is asking for today. But they are looking out uh, over the horizon at changes in what is uh, expected of them. And they're recognizing that they need to respond to an array of stakeholders, not simply customers, although, of course, customers matter a lot. But increasingly, they are part of communities, and if there's a community health burden that's created by their behavior, they have to expect increasingly to be called to account for that and to pay a price for that, and that communities should and will ask for better performance. They have to recognize that every company is in a struggle to hire the very best employees, and companies that are in competition for the high-end knowledge workers who have lots of choices about where to work and who want to align their values with the companies that they commit their lives to, are going to choose companies that are doing the right thing, that are making changes ahead of demand from the marketplace. So I think there are these uh, different incentives out there beyond pure price signals or marketplace signals. And it really does um, take good corporate leadership to see them. And the fact that you point out that some companies are stepping ahead of the pack 
tells me that they're the ones that probably will be running out ahead of market trends and profitable because they are stepping in front. Yeah, to change gears just a little bit, one thing that you and I agree on, I know, is that the the worlds of nutrition and public health and environmental concerns, those two worlds, have some common territory where they could interact in probably a pretty good way. But until now, those fields really haven't even spoken very much to each other. But they come together over the issue of food and how food is produced and things like that. Tell me a little bit about your thoughts on that. Well, I think what we have um, started to see is that one of the critical elements of environmental performance is environmental health. And uh, this is partly a function of the air we breathe and the water we drink. But I think people also recognize it as something to do with the food we eat and, frankly, how that food is produced. So there is um, a tie from uh, nutrition uh, to agriculture and to the environment. And I believe that we're going to see more in the way of policy efforts to bring these into alignment. And uh, to the extent that our environmental choices um, are shaped in – our environmental outcomes are shaped by choices that are made in the farming world and in the nutrition world, uh, we do want to see that alignment. So, for example, I think there is a growing public demand for healthier food, for more organic food, for less in the way of chemical uh, exposure on food. And that has a real lesson for agriculture. And for food grown locally would be following Absolutely, for local food as well. So all of that comes together with some new incentives. And um, I see a, a price premium being paid in the market every day for those that are offering the organic product, the healthier product. And that tells me that the farming world needs to step up. Uh, clearly, the fact that you have these persistent, significant premiums for the organic or healthier product says that uh, demand is outstripping supply. And I do think to the extent that the society has an incentive to put that healthier product in front of uh, the consumer, we should be thinking about government policies that reinforce the trend, that speed up the process of getting those healthier foods to our consuming public. Let's talk about corn and subsidies for a moment. Uh, for many, many years, these corn subsidies were in place, and nobody questioned them on environmental or nutrition grounds, but they're pretty relevant on bo in both cases. And I'll just mention some of the environmental concerns, I mean the nutrition concerns, and then maybe you can address some of the environmental concerns. It would be fun to brainstorm how these two areas of concern could come together. On the nutrition front, um, the, the subsidies to the corn farmers drive down the market price of corn. It becomes very inexpensive to do several things then. One is to feed animals uh, to make meat. And so things like hamburger are being artificially subsidized by the government because of the corn subsidies. It also becomes very inexpensive to produce what has become a very highly used sweetener, high fructose corn syrup. Um, and then, of course, cooking oils become very cheap. The corn oils that get made, they get used to fry french fries and things like that. So the low cost of corn, because of the subsidies, has a big impact on nutrition. Nobody's quite modeled the, the, the impact and, and put a number to it, but we know it's significant. And I know you've thought, too, about the environmental um, damage done by the corn subsidies. Why don't you mention that? Then we can talk about how they come together. Well, so there's a, a tremendous problem in our agriculture system generally because we do subsidize corn and a small number of other crops very heavily. And this induces farmers to grow these crops, to grow them in very intensive ways, uh, farming right up to river's edges and causing uh, uh, fertilizers and pesticides to flow off the fields into those rivers and waterways. Uh, it also produces a, an incentive for chemical-intensive agriculture to try
try and drive up yields to increase the subsidies, increase the profitability, and that, of course, uh, produces a product that is not as healthy and not one that increasingly the public wants. And beyond that, we today have a, a sort of new strategy around addressing our uh, fossil fuel dependence by trying to promote biofuels. So the big new use of corn is as a feedstock for um, ethanol. And that creates a whole new set of challenges as it's um, increasing the competition between food uh, and land used for food and land used for fuel. And beyond that, it's quite clear that um, as a biofuel future goes, corn-based ethanol is among our worst alternatives. Uh, it takes uh, three units of fossil fuel inputs to get four units of corn-based ethanol out. Very inefficient from a fuel change point of view. And not only that, it's uh, causing a price spike, and maybe we should celebrate this from a nutrition point of view, a price spike in corn, and therefore more expensive hamburger, more expensive chicken, but it also means more expensive tortillas for poor Mexicans. And uh, frankly, it's uh, causing farmers to switch out of growing other crops. Uh, and maybe again, from a public health point of view, we should celebrate if there's less hops and less barley grown and less beer drunk. But I think the American public is only beginning to realize the sort of knock-on effects from our big emphasis on subsidizing corn. And if we're serious about a, a biofuel future, it shouldn't be from subsidizing corn. We really should be looking at cellulosic ethanol, uh, which can be made from prairie grass or agricultural waste, or for that matter, uh, in, instead of having sugar uh, sweeten our foods, having sugar-based ethanol, which can be done very uh, economically and with much better energy efficiency, particularly if the Brazilians do it. So. There are people out there in the world, in the general public, and legislators, too, who care about the environment. There are others who care about nutrition. And it seems about time that they shook hands and said, we're on the same team, because then you just increase the power of persuasion by those two groups if they act together. Do you agree with that? Absolutely. And one of the things, the sort of powerful lessons about studying when we get environmental progress, and it's hard to get environmental progress, is that we do so most easily when there's alignment of environmental goals with other goals. And I think we've started to see some real change on climate uh, issues, on greenhouse gas emissions, even though we've known about this issue for some time, for two decades. But in the last couple of years, we're starting to see the alignment of concern about local air pollution that comes from burning fossil fuels and increased asthma rates in some of our cities with the recognition of the buildup of greenhouse gases starting to be a real threat, with concern among the public about things like Hurricane Katrina and wondering whether we're going to have more intense hurricanes because of climate change. And then I think a very significant concern in the public around our fossil fuel dependency. Tremendous frustration with the picture in Iraq and the, the seeming endless uh, war there. And I think a, a fear beyond Iraq that dependence on fossil fuels means dependence on the unstable region of the Middle East and even if we were to extract ourselves from there, we then are dependent on Russia and Kazakhstan and Nigeria and Venezuela for fossil fuels. So we're seeing a public that's really ready for alternative energy, and all of that would allow us to bring down greenhouse gas emissions. So it's the multiple agendas that can be pulled together and woven into a coalition that I think really pr produce the opportunity for big change, especially on hard issues. This is so interesting and important. I'd love to go on forever. Um, but let me ask one final question before I thank you and we um, part paths here. In the United States, um, we and others think a lot about whether national change or local change is really going to produce the, the greatest benefit. And in the area of nutrition, the food industry is a very, very powerful lobby, the agriculture industry as well. 
And because of that, there's been very little progress at the national level. There's talk, but really very little action, especially of a regulatory type. The real action seems to be happening in the state and local levels where you get um, people, uh, it's hard for the food industry to keep up with these. They can kind of keep up with the state things, but it's hard. They have trouble keeping up with local advances, whereas they can fight pretty effectively at the national level. And so this idea of grassroots local state things um, really helping shift the the view people have of a topic or taking action on a topic is quite relevant in our arena. And I'm thinking it probably is in yours as well, but I'm kind of curious how. And I remember you saying, um, well, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but, it, but my own impression is that the federal government in the United States has been very slow out of the gate to deal with issues of the environment. And you mentioned that a large number of city mayors in the United States have have signed a a pledge to have standards consistent with the Kyoto Treaty. What do you think about that national versus local action, and how does it apply in the environmental arena? Well, in the environmental arena, we have long recognized that there are opportunities for action at the state level, at the local level, and at the federal level, and increasingly now at the global level. And uh, it's the interplay across those levels that often produces the best results. And one of the great strengths of the American political system is that where we have policy failure at one of those levels, we often get countervailing success and activity at another level. So if one looks over the last 15 years at the efforts in Washington to address climate change, it's been frankly a disaster. We've really made almost no progress whatsoever. And uh, that's a terrible disappointment to those who think that the threat of global warming is serious and we really should be taking action. And I think from outside the United States, people look at Washington and can be very dismayed. But at the same time, we have seen action at the state level. 27 states have now adopted uh, greenhouse gas emissions controls in one form or another, particularly in requirements for some percent of the electricity in the state being produced by uh, renewable energy sources. And beyond that, state-level leadership, and it's been very pronounced on both coasts with uh, Governor Schwarzenegger in California setting up a very interesting and sophisticated greenhouse gas emissions reduction strategy, uh, matching, uh, in fact, what's been done in the Northeast under the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative. But beyond those state levels, we do have 600-plus mayors who've committed their cities and towns to meeting the Kyoto Protocol commitments to greenhouse gas emissions control. So we are getting a lot of activity, a lot of energy at the state and local level. And frankly, it's provided something of a safety net protecting the United States from what otherwise would have been a terrible result from the policy failure in Washington. So I think as we move to action in Washington over the next year or two on greenhouse gas emissions, we're very lucky that we've had this uh, base to build on that's been produced at the state and local level. And it'll mean we can catch up more quickly with our counterparts around the world, particularly in Europe. Thank you. I appreciate that. I'm not an expert on the environment, but there are a couple of things I know. Uh, one is that it's, these are terribly important issues to the future of human well-being. Uh, second, there's been a lot of change happen in recent years. And third, you're one of the key movers for all that. So on behalf of, uh, of me and my children and other people out there in the world that are um, addressed by the environment, I thank you for all your hard work and what you've accomplished. Well, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be with you. Uh, So I thank Daniel Esty, the Hill House Professor of Environmental Law and Policy, with appointments in both the Yale Law School and the Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Sciences for taking part in another Rudd Center webcast. For those of you listening, 
um, you're more than welcome to come to the Rudd Center website, which is at www.yalerudcenter.org. Um, and you'll find a list of a number of resources related to nutrition, public health, and public policy, including outstanding webcasts like the one that you heard today. Thank you very much.